Coming to you from Annapolis, Maryland, home of the U.S. Naval Academy, the sailing capital of the world, home of the world's largest crab feast, and four signers of the Declaration of Independence. This is the Eye on Annapolis Daily News Brief, a daily roundup of local news that you can use, including local sports, local events, local opinion, and local weather from DMV Weather. Now here's your host, publisher of Eye on Annapolis, John Frenet. Beer in a grocery store? Not so fast. While 70% of the consumers want it and the growing craft beer industry could use it, the force is strong in Maryland. The issue came up recently at the latest Reform on Tap, which is a panel brought together by Maryland Comptroller Peter Francho to reform some antiquated alcohol laws in the state of Maryland. The Comptroller himself does not favor sale of beer and wine in a grocery store. According to a spokesman, the Comptroller's position is, and always has been, that grocery stores should sell groceries and retail stores should sell beer, wine, and spirits. Over in the Legislator Delegate Derek Davis, who is Chairman of the House Economic Matters Committee, which oversees the liquor's law, does not see any reason to veer from Maryland's current sales structure, which has been put in place since the 1930s. He says we have no shortage of liquor stores in the state of Maryland and we have no shortage of grocery stores. Over in Baltimore, Senator Joan Carter Conway chairs the Senate Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee, which also deals with liquor laws, says that once you open the door, the door is open. You can't close it. And once you let the big guys in, you can forget about the microbreweries. So while consumers do seem to really want to have beer and wine available in grocery stores, it doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon, at least here in Maryland. Anne Arundel County Executive Steve Shu really upped the fight against opioid abuse in Anne Arundel County. Yesterday, he announced that he has hired a Washington-based law firm, Motley Rice, to sue opioid manufacturers, distributors, and local pill mill doctors to see if we can put a curb on the opioid addiction that we're finding. The New England Journal of Medicine reported that 75 to 80 percent of the people addicted to opioids in the 2000s started their addictions while on prescription drugs. And locally here, in 2015, there were enough opioids prescribed in Anne Arundel County to give each county resident a two-week supply. While opioids can provide valid pain relief in certain medical circumstances, our overall rates are entirely unwarranted and we are seeing red flags in the prescribing practices of certain local prescribers, said County Health Officer Fran Phillips. She would not identify the manufacturers, the doctors, or the distributors he is targeting, but this will be one of the first lawsuits of its kind brought forth in the country. Anne Arundel has the third largest number of fatal overdose deaths in the state of Maryland in 2016 at 119. This year appears to be seeing a similar pace with 92 overdoses as of August 23rd. The top two jurisdictions in Maryland are Baltimore City and Baltimore County. In school news, it looks like a controversial cell tower proposed for the Shadyside Elementary School property is one step closer to approval. A 114-foot cell phone tower was granted approval by the Anne Arundel County School Board yesterday for an item review. It was not subject to a yes or no vote, but essentially by not acting, the board approved the project. Opponents to the tower claim that EMFs, or emitted radio frequency radiation, could be harmful to elementary age students, although that has not been proven at this point. However, there are a lot of local residents that are indeed in favor of it because of the poor cell reception cited in South County area. One Shadyside resident and teacher told the Capitol newspaper that she wants the tower, cited poor reception in the area, and she is a teacher and a hobbyist beekeeper. And she said, 
I mention it so you would know that I am a credible resident and that I love children and nature. This is Maryland. The weather can be nearly unpredictable. We've got George Young from DMV Weather in Annapolis to sort it all out. All right, hey everyone, this is George from DMV Weather. Let's get right into the forecast. First, the short term. The next four days will be about as easy as it gets forecasting-wise and pretty much as nice as it gets weather-wise for Annapolis and Anne Arundel County on the whole as we will have sunny skies, generally light winds, high temps 70 to 75 degrees each day, and overnight lows in the 55 to 65 degree range. So get out and about today through Sunday and enjoy. Now looking a bit further out, let's talk about Hurricane Irma. As of this morning, Hurricane Irma is still a Category 5 hurricane, and while there is still a fair amount of uncertainty with regard to the exact ultimate path the storm will take, it is almost a certainty that Irma will interact with the United States. Why so much uncertainty still? Simple. It's nearly impossible, even at this point, only three to five days away from landfall, to pin down the exact point in which this storm will make a fairly abrupt turn to the north. The sooner that happens, the greater the risk of impact from Irma to the southeast coast and possibly even the mid-Atlantic and northeast. The later it happens, the greater the risk to South Florida and the east coast of Florida on the whole. And every minute counts as a turn to the north at, say, 6 p.m. Saturday versus 11 p.m. Saturday could make the difference of 60-plus miles, given Irma's forward speed of 15-plus miles per hour. And 60-plus miles can easily be the difference between a direct strike on the Florida Keys in South Florida or a miss off the east coast of Florida and a more direct path toward the southeast coast and maybe even the mid-Atlantic states. The most recent guidance is still split between these two scenarios, with the GFS and others keeping Irma just offshore of Miami and the Euro and others bringing a devastating direct strike to much of South Florida. As a result, this storm must continue to be monitored very closely in the Annapolis and Anne Arundel County area as short-term changes most definitely can and will have big ramifications on the end result just several days from now. So now is the time to continue to at least prepare mentally in the Annapolis area for what to do if this dangerous storm ultimately impacts the region. Okay, that's it for us today. Be sure to download the free DMV Weather app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store by searching for DC MDVA Weather and also follow us 24 7, 365 on social media or on our website at dmvweather.com. Our Twitter handle is DMV underscore weather and our Facebook page is slash the DMV Weather page. This is George Young of DMV Weather with your Annapolis forecast. Whatever the weather out there, have fun and be safe. The Eye on Annapolis Daily is possible in part because of the generous support from Ramshead on stage. Ramshead, where every seat is less than 48 feet from the stage, brings more than 400 concerts a year to the area. To wet your whistle, check out some of these upcoming shows. On September 7th, Pablo Cruz, Carla Bonhoff on the 13th, Dennis DeYoung and the Music of Sticks will play at Maryland Hall on the 13th, and the one I'm most looking forward to, Randy Newman on September 21st, also at Maryland Hall. Yes, Randy Newman, short people, I love L.A., and you've got a friend in me. Tickets are still available, and you can get yours at ramsheadonstage.com. Or if you want to go old school, head on down to their box office. Ramshead is located in the heart of beautiful downtown Annapolis at 33 West Street. For a guaranteed great night out on the town, ramsheadonstage.com. They say opinions are like... Here we are with a dose of opinion for you. What do worms, leeches, jellyfish, and most of the Annapolis City Council have in common? They're all challenged in the backbone department. I really wish this were a bad political joke 
albeit a recurring one, but sadly it isn't. During Monday's council meeting, the city council will once again kick the market house can down the road, a road that apparently goes on for hundreds and hundreds of miles. The mayor has introduced legislation to extend the current lease for another year so that after the election, the new council can go back to the drawing board for the umpteenth time. Lest anyone forget, the reason that the current council rushed the request for the proposal was so that the next council wouldn't have to tangle with the process. Ironically, this makes it far worse for them as they are now going to have to pick through not only the proposals, but the tangle of an RFP process contrived by the current city council. Good luck with that mess. But when it's all said and done, the current alder persons who are up for re-election just clumsily shot themselves in the foot. Up to this point, the market house was a healed over scar, ugly and useless, but for the most part, forgotten about. But by reopening the market house wound, council just reminded the voter that the hulking useless building at the bottom of the main street is actually a 13-year-old $6 million and counting monument to governmental ineptitude and incompetence. Overnight, they reanimated the city's worst mistake, one that will now lurch through their opponent's campaign literature like Frankenstein's monster. Ironically enough, Alderman Littman and Pfeiffer, the only two council members with the common sense and intestinal fortitude to vote against delaying the vote, are not seeking re-election. I spoke to one of the bidders who submitted a proposal, and they said they spent more than $10,000 in professional fees alone to prepare their proposal. That same bidder also spent more than 200 man-hours in meetings and conceptualizing the project. All for the city council to say, Oh, sorry, changed our mind, my bad. No, wait, they didn't say my bad. They claimed that after all three proposals flew through two committees that they didn't actually meet the criteria of the RFPs. This Lucy Charlie Brown football scenario may be funny during a great pumpkin holiday special, but it is an embarrassing way to govern a city. The city already has a perennial reputation for being unfriendly to business, but this elevates that reputation to outward hostility. What does it take to do business in this town? Is it too much to ask that the city's elected officials show some integrity and political courage so that they can do the jobs which the taxpayers have entrusted them? Let's take a trip in the Wayback Machine. Weeks of debate on the mayor's budget. Hours per meeting with grandstanding, bean counting, charts, wailing, gnashing of the teeth, and in the end, the budget passes. Handily. But wait. In a press conference the following day, led by Alderman Littman, who voted against the budget, all the other alderpersons rode in on his coattails to express their outrage at the budget. That same budget that they voted to approve. They knew that the time to express the outrage and to actually do something about the budget was during the budget vote, right? Please tell me they knew that. Crystal Spring. Oh, Crystal Spring. The city bent over backwards, forwards, and sideways to kick this can down Forest Drive for the past six years. Now... Six weeks before an election, the billionth revised plan that addressed all of their previous concerns is summarily rejected with a wave of the hand to be dealt with, you guessed it, after the election. Eastport Landing. This one takes the Annapolis cake. Follow this one if you can. The developer receives information on which to base their plans from the planning and zoning director. So far, so good. But that planning director then caves to political pressure of that ward's alderman who supported the project before he was against it. In the end, the appointed planning and zoning director rejects the proposal. Why? We're not really sure. He's not saying. I suspect something may come out. Wait for it. After the election. Who does these things? Your elected city council. That's who. I don't know the total cost spent on preparing the proposals for the market house, but if one was $10,000 in 200 hours, I imagine all three were similar. I'll repeat myself. Who does this stuff? As a resident, I am disgusted, not that they are paid that much, but making decisions is what they signed up for. 
If you're looking for someone to sit back and do nothing, just send me the $13,500. I am your man. But wait, they do have some important business on the agenda on Monday. They want to make Annapolis a, quote, hate-free zone, unquote. No longer will you be allowed to express your distaste for Brussels sprouts in the city of Annapolis or that horrible taste of orange juice after brushing your teeth. Gone are the days of hating to shovel snow after a snowstorm and your ex-wife, well, get used to loving her once again. This is the important work that our city council has before them now. The Annapolis Council should be ashamed of themselves. There is a history of saying one thing and doing another, time and time again. In 12 days, voters have a chance to begin to affect some change. In December, we have nine people taking office. Will they be fresh faces or the same old spineless jellyfish? I guess we'll know on November 7th. And that's what's been on my mind. Thanks for listening to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. If you like what you heard, make sure to tell your friends and colleagues about it. And also tell them about our website, ionanapolis.net, where you can find much more. Be sure to check out our other weekly podcast, The Maryland Crabs. This podcast comes to you every Monday through Friday at noon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.